Last Sunday morning, Psalm 147 was on my heart as I'd studied earlier in the week. And then Casey ended up reading it for our scripture reading that morning. And and, uh, this week I felt led to preach from this psalm as we begin a series of messages in the book of Psalms. And I'd ask you to take your Bible right now then and turn with me to the book of Psalms. Psalms chapter 147. If you, if you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible underneath the chair you're sitting in or close to you. You can stand with us in the, the honor of the reading of God's Word. God's Word's holy, and He's our King, and so let's stand in the honor of His presence and hear what He says in His Word. Psalm 147, beginning with verse 1. Praise the Lord, for it's good to sing praises to our God, for it's pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcast of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Sing the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lair. Verse 8, he covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and the young ravens that cry. Verse 10, his delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. Verse 12, praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. For he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of the wheat. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He's not dealt with, he has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. Let's pray together. Almighty God, you are worthy to be praised at all times. Father, I pray that we would know more about who you are and what you've done so deeply, so ingrained within our souls, Lord. We we brought our children here this morning because we want them to know you. We want them to, to... have a faith that they own themselves, Lord, and not not something we can't pass it down to them, Lord. So we're praying that for our children. We're praying that for one another, Lord, that we would know you deeply. That you would reveal yourself to us again affect us with the truth of who you are. Our focus all week long has been on horizontal things, things of this life, many of those things, good things, 
But Lord, now we've come to remind us of what our focus should be. Is you. You've created us for your glory. You've created us for your namesake. Please work in us. Please stir us, Lord. Make us know your ways that we may know you. And that we might praise you as you created us to. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Some of you probably saw some of the uh, movies that, that have been out in recent years, the God's Not Dead movies. And on those movies, um, I appreciate them. They're Christ-centered. And on those movies, one of the phrases that's said, that's, uh, I think the pastor that's portrayed on the movie says, God is good all the time. And what's the response? All the time, God is good. And that's right. Now, the one issue I would have with the God's Not Dead movies, if you've ever seen them, is everything always ends great. The atheist teacher gets saved. The student's vindicated. I mean, things are rough, but they always end great by the time the movie ends. And they're singing God's Not Dead at the Newsboys concert at the end of the movie. But then there's reality. There's real life. And while it's tr- it is absolutely true, God is good all the time, all the time God is good. And I appreciate that. The reality of life is, is that we don't always get vindicated in this life. The atheist instructor doesn't always come to know Jesus. The person that we're praying for doesn't always get healed. The struggle that we're having with ongoing sin in our life doesn't always go away in this life, does it? And we look at the book of Psalms, and it reminds us of that. Let me say a few things about the book of Psalms. And one is this, the Psalms are songs of praise, even prayers you could say, but they're used by the church, the early church's songs, and still today are used as songs. The Psalms are songs of praise reflecting the full range of human emotions, the full range of human emotions. So of course, the human emotion of joy, we think of praise, we think of joy, and that's expressed in the Psalms. And certainly that's felt in our life. There's many things in our life that would cause us to rejoice and to praise God that we're excited about. And then there's things that break our hearts in life, the reality of life. It's not a God's not dead world, so to speak. I mean, he's not dead, but the reality that we live in is these, sometimes we're not vindicated and all those things. And so there are Psalms in the book of Psalms that express those emotions when we've not been healed or we're still brokenhearted or we don't understand and we're still asking, why God, why have you forsaken me in Psalm chapter 23? Or not 23, but one of them in there. (laughs) 
So there's royal psalms and wisdom psalms and law psalms and Torah psalms and penitential psalms that talk about how we've sinned against God and we're singing to God and we're crying out to God, a confession to God. Knowing that the sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite heart she'll not despise. There's lament psalms and thanksgiving psalms and psalms of trust and psalms about how God delivered the people from Egypt. And there's the imprecatory psalms where the, it seems like there's no justice in the world and we're crying out to God, God, wipe them out. If they're not going to repent, wipe them out. That's the imprecatory psalms. So when we talk about the psalms being songs of praise that express the full range of emotions. It's all there. And I think it's why we love the Psalms. If I was to take a survey, I don't think it's right really to have a, right, a favorite book of the Bible because it's all God's word, right? But if I was to say that, I imagine many of you would probably say Psalms would come from many of your lips or Romans and other books of the Bible. But Psalms would be on the hearts of lips of many. But the book of Psalms is not a book about human emotions. It's a book about God. Amen? It's a book about God. And the very structure of the book of Psalms reminds us of that. I had this in the outline of your bulletin. In, the, in, the, in Psalms, there's what you call five books. And so if you actually look through the book of Psalms, you would see that in chapters 1 through 41 is book 1. And it ends with what, with what is called a doxology. So the last words of those 41 chapters in that 41st chapter ends with praise to God. If you were looking verse 13, you would see God being praised. Doxology means praise to God. It's a call to praise God. And so at the end of those five books of Psalm, of, within the book of Psalms, how it's structured, there's a doxology that ends each one. Indeed, the fifth book ends with about four chapters. It's all mostly doxology. It's all Praise to God. So when we say the, the book of Psalms is a, is a book of songs, prayers, of praise to God that cover the full range of emotions, that's right. But it's not a book about human emotions. It's a book about God. And the, and the way the, structured, the book of Psalms is structured reminds us of that because all these books end with doxology, praise to God, no matter what's going on. So let me say this to you this morning as I was thinking about this passage of Scripture and praying and thinking about our church. My heart and my desire and my prayer for you, seemingly as Paul prayed in Ephesians 3, is that you might know the gospel deeply. You might know who God is deeply and increasingly because it's only a solid theology. Theology is belief about God. Not trying to be fancy with words this morning, but it's a word that should be in our language, I think. Theology is belief about God. And what you believe about God is going to determine your doxology, how you praise God. So if your belief about God is shallow, it's just, you know, it's, it's all you got uh, all you know about God is, 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 is what you got when you're just a little boy and you've never grown much in your faith in Christ at all. It's going to affect your doxology. Your ability to praise God at all times is going to be affected by that. You find out some tragic things in your life that are taking place, there's going to be hard times. The Bible says, indeed, all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. You're here this morning, you want to follow Jesus, we pray that you will. And you're going to be carrying a cross if you do. 
everything's going to be better eternally. And with God, here on this earth, get ready. Suffering is coming. Persecution is coming if you're going to follow Jesus. Say, preacher, that's not what I wanted to hear. I wanted to hear, you know, all peppy stuff. Well, I do too sometimes, but let's talk about the reality of life and what's real about the Christian life. And what's going to carry us when the cross that we're carrying is weightier and feels heavier than it does at other times? What's going to carry us is knowing who God is. Is knowing the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ. For example, Job's three friends. You remember the story of Job? who suffered as he did in the book of Job, lost his family, lost his possessions. His wife said, curse God and die, Job. Remember what Job's three friends, they came and counseled him. You remember what their theology was? They had a shallow theology. There were some right things they said about God. But their theology, their belief about God was, is if you're doing good and you're trying to serve the Lord, then everything's going to go good for you. Right? Basically a health and wealth type of gospel. And Job comes along and says, well, I've not sinned. And they said, surely you've done something wrong or God wouldn't be allowing this to happen to you. The reason you're losing everything is because you've sinned. Job said, he's not saying he's perfect, but he's, he said, I'm not, I can't trace what's happening here to a specific ongoing thing in my life so he maintains his integrity. So the theology of Job's three, three friends is wrong and it leads them not to be able to praise God through a, through a psalm of trust or a song of hope in God that God will help us one day to understand it better by and by but their, their counsel is contrary to who God is. And Job's response as we sung the first song this morning the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. He's to be blessed, he's to be praised at all times when he gives and when he takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We see in Psalm chapter 147 verse 1, at the very end of this verse that's hung with me the last few weeks and thinking about messages God was placing on my heart to preach from his word, when he says, praise the Lord for it's good to sing praises to our God. It's, first of all, understand when it comes to singing praises to God, it's good. You see that? It's good to sing praises to God. That's a good thing. It's pleasant, it says in this translation. It's beautiful. It's a, and then it says, a song of praise is fitting. Beautiful, it says in some translations. Lovely, it says in other translations. The English Standard Version says, fitting. It is always fitting to praise God. There's many times when it's not fitting to do certain things. But it's always fitting to praise God. You know what it's like for something to not be fitting. Some clothes don't fit you sometimes or there's certain situations and people acting a certain way that doesn't fit the enormity of a situation. It was interesting this week in the State of the Union address, 
I just happened to turn over there. I wasn't trying to even watch it, but I just happened to turn over there when our president was addressing the, um, the divided, clearly divided, visibly divided uh, congressmen, senates and congressmen and so forth, and, and he was addressing how he was going to support legislation that would allow mothers and parents to spend more time with their children at home when they have a baby and so forth. And there's other things like that. I forget exactly the details. And this is what he said. And everybody stood up and applauded that. Everybody. Yeah, that's what everybody was united about. Yes. Then he said this. There could be no greater contrast to the beautiful image of a mother holding her infant child than the chilling displays our nation saw in recent days. Lawmakers in New York cheered with delight upon the passage of legislation that would allow a baby to be ripped from the mother's womb moments from birth. I thought, man, he nailed that. What greater contrast. What, what a fitting thing for a mother to hold their child and have more time with their children at home. And what an unfitting thing for a mother to permit and allow her unborn child to be ripped from her womb. What an unfitting thing. And then there were not so many cheers. There were cheers. But many sit with closed mouths, hard-hearted. How could you sit? How could you be so calloused? And I'll tell you why. Because you don't see the Bible, you don't see the world through a biblical lens. Your belief about God, if there is any at all, is zilch. It's not derived from Scripture. Your theology, your belief about God determines your doxology, how you're going to praise God. If you, if you, if you see the world through an unbiblical lens, then you're not going to praise God at all times. The main point here in this passage of Scripture, in this psalm, this message, again, is always fitting, folks, to praise the Lord. It is always fitting to praise the Lord because of the unchanging nature of God, of the Lord and His ways. That's what I, I desire for you as a congregation, as, their, as your pastor. In good times and bad, that you will be able to have such a healthy theology, a healthy understanding of who this God is that even with tears in your eyes and a broken heart, you could still praise the Lord. And I'm blessed because I see that often from you already. But I want us to grow increasingly in that, right? Together as a church family. That we could praise the Lord at all times because he, because of his unchanging nature. You see, our God is not a moody God. You know, you know some moody people in your life? Just don't never know what you're going to get? Our God's not that way. Amen? He's always the same. I, the Lord, he says, change not. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so because of that, he can be praised at all times. Let's look at the psalm, not Psalm 147, not that it's even intended this psalm to be comprehensive about all the reasons for which we could praise the Lord and that a song of praise is always fitting for the Lord. But let's look at it and look at six things 
very quickly together. Number one, it's always fitting to praise the Lord because of his unchanging nature, because of the Lord's pity. The Lord's pity, or compassion, you might say. The Lord's pity. Look at verse 2 and 3. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcast of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. What's the Lord doing here? In the context, it's thought that what the psalmist is talking about here in this psalm is that Israel had been captured at a nation and went into captivity to other nations and now God had brought them back after the exile. That's what's thought to be the the context here. And now the psalmist is thinking about how God is building Jerusalem up again in verse 2. You see that in your Bible? He's gathered the outcast of Israel in verse 2. He's, and, and not, not ju- he's, not, he's not just this God that's taking care of their physical needs, but look at verse 3. He heals the brokenhearted. Remember how some of the elder people saw the temple when they, when they tried to rebuild it? And people were rejoicing and some of the elder people were saying they were crying because it wasn't as glorious as it was before. There were wounds in their hearts. This is a God who's meeting physical needs and also emotional needs. He, he understands their frame that it's but dust. He heals the brokenhearted. He binds up their wounds. We see the Lord's compassion. They'd went into captivity, if this is the context, they'd went into captivity because of what? Their sin. You see the Lord's compassion? His pity? What's this mean for us? It means when I'm brokenhearted, when your heart is broken, maybe it's because of a situation in your life, maybe it's because of sin in your life, whatever the situation is, when you're feeling brokenhearted, you can praise God because you know this. You may not know why he's allowing, permitting, ordaining, whatever it is to go on in your life right now that's led to your brokenheartedness, your loneliness. may not ever know, but this you know. It is the Lord's way and it is the Lord's nature that never changes to be compassionate and merciful, right? That you know and that you hope in and that you trust in. And we can't read the Psalms without thinking about Christ. We don't live in the time of David. We live post-David. We see that Jesus is David's son that the Bible speaks about, the one who inherits the throne of David. And what did Jesus do for us? He died for us on the cross and rose again from the grave. The Lord has been compassionate to us in ways that David saw but did not see as we do. So the scripture says in Psalm 34, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Psalm 58 says, you've kept count of my tossings. You've put my tears in your bottle. This is the God that we serve. He puts your tears in his bottle. He is aware. Listen, church, God is not oblivious to your pain and to your hurt. But sometimes it may feel that way, but it's not true. He knows. He sees. Cast all your cares upon the Lord, for he cares for you, the scripture says. So we praise God at all times, even when we're hurting, because we know it's his nature and his ways to be compassionate and kind. Because of the Lord's pity, we know this is who God is. Secondly, because of the Lord's power. Look at verse 4. He determines the number of the stars. Think about this. 
This is the Lord that binds up our wounds, that heals our broken hearts, that gathers the outcast of Israel. This is the same God that, that numbers the stars and gives them all their name. You see that? He, what is man, he says in Psalm 8, that you're mindful of us, that you care for us. You, you've hung the moon and the stars. Why do you care about us? But the psalmist says here again in Psalm 147, he's this God of, of great compassion. He's, he's great pity for his people in particular. The same God that numbers the stars gives them all their names, it says in verse 4. Great, verse 5, great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. No limitations to his understanding. The Lord lifts up the humble he casts the wicked, to the ground. So we can praise the Lord because of the Lord's power displayed in creation and displayed, in, displayed often in his actions towards his people and certainly will be one day on the day of judgment. Notice again he says in verse 6, the Lord lifts up the humble and he casts the wicked to the ground. What's that mean? Since I've mentioned abortion, I'll mention it again this morning. We think of the, we were watching some home videos last night at home from when the kids were little. And uh, our kids just loved watching themselves. We're a very narcissistic family. <laughs> we were watching with our youngest now, who's seven, as a baby on the video, Titus. And my oldest, Josiah, he said, He's so cute. How could anybody want to abort a baby? I said, I don't know, son. I don't know. And I know when I mention this topic, there's people here who suffer in different ways because of that. And if I'm not careful to pause right now and recognize that, then you're going to be lost the rest of the sermons. So let me say, if you've had an abortion, God loves you. And if you've asked him to forgive you, he has forgiven you. And you probably hurt as much as anybody in this room over anything you've done. And we want to be a church that ministers to those who've hurt, right? And on the other side of the equation, for those that advocate such atrocity that advocate for it and that perform it while we pray for their salvation we also pray God we pray the imprecatory psalms if they're not going to repent God get them out of here that's strong but that's what we see in the psalms we see in Psalm chapter 58 he says to the choir master, according to not destroy, he says this, do you judge the children of man uprightly? No, in your heart you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on the earth. The psalmist is talking about the wicked in the land. And so the psalmist says, O God, break their teeth and their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. 
Mankind will say, when God does this, when God judges, when there's justice and vindication one day, the psalmist says, mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges the earth. We praise God for his power because God has the power to judge the wicked and he has the wisdom to know when it should happen and he will always do right. Will the judge of the earth not do what's right, Abraham asked? The answer is yes, he always does. And so even when we look around us and we see injustice in the world, we praise God that he has the power, the wisdom, that he's a just God to deal with those in his time who will not repent, even though we pray for their repentance as well. We praise God for the Lord's power, even when we see injustice. Number three, we praise God at all times. We pray the, praise God for the Lord's provision, for his provision. Verse seven says, sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre or the lyre. I'm not even sure how to pronounce that. It's a U-shaped instrument, kind of like a U-shaped harp, a small harp, a U-shaped harp. So he says, praise to God, praise to God. Pick up your guitar and start singing to the Lord at all times. Because this is a God that provides. Look in verse 8. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares the rain for the earth. He makes grasses grow on the hills. He gives beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. He's, he's providing for us. He's to be praised His delight is not in the strength of the horse nor his pleasure in the legs of a man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. So this is a God who provides. I remember uh, when I got out of the army in 1991, the first, or I didn't get out of the army in 91, I got back from Desert Storm. Uh, they were giving veterans a discount. Go for veterans a discount. So I got a discount from Ford and went out and bought me a brand new Ford Ranger, 91 Ford Ranger. Boy, I thought I was hot stuff. About 10 years later in seminary, that Ford Ranger had 270,000 miles on it. I wasn't praising the Lord then. I was whining about it, you know. You could hear it coming up and down the road and transmission went out later. The engine had to be replaced and it was a mess. I didn't have a penny to my name to pay for it. Mom and Dad helped out. So the Lord provided I remember not long after that, somebody pulled up and gave me a brand new 2003 Ford Ranger just right off the parking lot. What? You're giving this to me? And of course, it was easy to praise the Lord then. God was providing Jehovah Jireh. You know, people asked me, I was preaching a revival somewhere is where that happened and somebody did it and some preacher, other preacher friends of mine said, well, where did you preach revival at? They need a revival preacher. When we see about the Lord's provision here, and particularly in verse 8 and 9, we're reminded of this. Even if we still got the old Ford Ranger, it's got 270,000 miles on it, and the the transmission goes out on the interstate on the way to preach revival and do God's work in North Carolina. And you don't understand why that's happening. You can still praise the Lord because... This is the God that provides at all times. He's going to provide. He's going to take care of the needs. You just don't know how. 
So even when you don't know how you're going to pay your bills and, and there's not this miraculous check in the mail, you can still praise the Lord because he's promised to provide. It is his nature, it is his ways. It is always fitting to praise the Lord because of his unchanging nature is to provide for his people. So we praise him. Number four, it's because of the Lord's pleasure we praise him. The Lord's not a sports fan. I hate to tell you that for all of us sports fans. I love Tennessee's number one right now. Basketball, just so you know. So, and so you know I'm not against sports. But the Lord's not a sports fan. I mean, praying for God to give us wins and so forth is just silly. He's not impressed with the legs of animals and the legs of men, with athletic feats or military victories that men might accomplish in strength that he's given to them. Look what it says. Look what your Bible in verse 10. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. He doesn't delight in those things. Military achievements, athletic achievements, he's the one that's given the talents to do all those things. So you think God's going to say, yeah, look at them. No. We're supposed to give him glory when we use our talents and so forth that way. He's not impressed. What's he impressed with? Look at verse 11. You want to know? You know what pleases God? What draws his attention? Verse 11. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him. In those who hope in his steadfast love. Those who fear him is not talking about, I'm scared of God. That's not what it means. Those who fear him means they reverence him. They know what he says and they look to him for guidance. They, look, they seek to do what he says. They, they're trusting him to do what his word says. That, that, to be God-fearing is to seek to be obedient. And that pleases God. It's in those who hope in his steadfast love. They keep on hoping when there seems to not be hope. They hope in the fact that he is, his love is steadfast. He's always, he's always a loving God. So when we keep obeying the Lord, seeking to obey the Lord, and hoping in the Lord, what do we call that? Endurance. We call it endurance, perseverance. That's what verse 11, God takes pleasure when his people seek to endure in faith and keep obeying him even when it's hard. So how does that? How does that help us to praise the Lord at all times? He's pleased when we persevere, even imperfectly. I can praise the Lord when I'm feeling the weight of the cross, like I said earlier. And, he, and knowing that he looks upon me and he knows I'm struggling and having a hard time, but I'm seeking to do the right things, he's pleased with that. Even in its imperfections, he's pleased with it. Fifthly, because of the Lord's protection. Because of the Lord's protection. I'm not sure how many of you want a border wall or not, and I'm not here to debate the issue, but I want you to notice what the Bible says in verse 15 about the Lord's protection. He sends out his command, excuse me, in verse 12. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. For he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of wheat. 
So here we have in context the nation of Israel who, had, who is a geographical nation. They have their borders and God is protecting them within their borders. And so God's being praised by Israel for his protection of them as a nation, as his nation, the nation of Israel. But again, as we look at the Psalms or any passage of Scripture in the Old Testament, we, we interpret in light of the fact that Christ has come and fulfilled the Old Covenant and that we as God's people, the church, are a nation without borders. That we actually don't have borders as the church of the living God. The church is a holy nation without borders. So... What does God promise in relation to the security of the church? Because that's what he's praising God for is the, is the security of the nation of Israel. How's God promised to secure us as the church of the living God? We don't have physical borders. So what, how's he securing us? He says, no one's going to pluck you out of my hands. That's how secure you are. He says, like Ryan was quoting earlier about his in-laws, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. He says, what shall separate us from the love of God? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? And the answer is, nothing, because you're secure. That, that, that's what matters. So I'm not debating border security this morning, all right? Leave me out of it. But what it means is this. Praise God when I'm concerned about our borders of the country. I'm not saying that's not something to be concerned about, right? When I'm concerned about our nation's borders, or I'm concerned about national security, or the economy, or whatever else I see on CNN or Fox, as a Christian, I can praise God at all times that the nation I'm part of is the church of the living God ultimately, right? I'm concerned about our nation, America. I get it. Yes, I know. But nothing's going to happen to God's people. Amen? So I can praise God at all times, even though I'm very concerned about the things going around me. So Psalm 23 says, as Tim quoted this morning, read, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, right? For you are with me and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. And remember what he says? Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I will be secure forever. How much more is that true for those of us who are under the new covenant now that Jesus Christ has come? How much more should we praise the living God for the Lord's protection? And finally, the Lord's plan. It's fitting as we look at these verses that there was an ice storm this morning. The Lord reminding us that he is the one that brings about the pellets of ice that the scripture talks about here. Look at verse 15. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. Verse 17. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? Man, it's been cold lately, right? Who can stand before his cold? Who can resist it? Who can say, nope, we're not doing that today. 
We know what the meteorologist said. It's going to be 18 degrees below tomorrow. But no, we're standing against it. You can't do it. Ice crystals, get out of here. Snow, be gone. But Jesus can do it. The one that calmed the storm and said, peace be still. He's the one that sends the snow and the ice crystals. The point here is, is that God has sent forth his word and he does things with his word for people generally that all people see. It's general revelation. The fool has said in his heart there is no God. And what we're seeing the psalmist rejoice in in verse 15 through 17 here, even verse 18 says he sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. You want all the ice to be gone? You can't do it. You can get out there with the salt and salt everything if you want to, but it's going to be, you know, you're going to do it in a long time. But the Lord sends forth this word and the ice melts, causes rivers to flow. Now, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The point is here in the psalm, the psalmist is saying, everybody in this world, in this room and in this world, can observe this. You can see God doing this by his word. But look at what else what he does. Verse 19, he declares his word to Jacob. His statutes and rules to Israel. He's not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. What this means is there's a general word that's been given to all people to observe God's plans at work in the world. That there's a great God that must be obeyed and it's a fool that said in his heart there is no God. The fool would, would not want to serve the living God and not acknowledge and give thanks to him. But that's what we do by nature. But God has given a more specific word, a more precise word to Israel, to Jacob it says here in these words. That's called special revelation. And that word was the law. That word was the covenant. But as Tim was talking about in Sunday school this morning, that word was not just uh, stories inter not related to one another. That was God's plan unfolding, his redemptive plan to save Israel from sin and to save the Gentiles as well, just like he promised Abraham, right? That word was given to Israel specifically to be shared with the nations. So what God was doing in those rules, in that covenant, is unfolding his plan, the Lord's plan. So you see words in the Psalms like this, Jerusalem, Zion, when you read the Psalms, dwelling place, or the psalmist will be talking about that city. He's talking about Israel. How beautiful is your dwelling place? He's not talking about heaven. He's talking about the temple in Jerusalem, right? That's what the psalmist in context is talking about. What we're reminded of as the church is that we are the temple, right? That God dwells within us. We are the dwelling place. We are even the city that comes out of heaven clothed as a bride adorned for a husband. Why is this? How is this? Because that word that was spoken to Israel, the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. Because we sin and we need a redeemer, we need a savior. And he came, Jesus Christ came as a substitute to die in your place, in my place on the cross for our sins. And so now we sing a new song. We sing songs. 
We sing the Psalms and pray the Psalms in a way that David, who wrote many of them, could never sing them. You understand? Because we sing it on this side of the cross, on this side where Jesus has come, in light of Jesus. All right? We sing a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, Revelation 5 says. For you were slain, and by your blood you, were, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So what I'm saying to you is this. We rejoice at all times because the Lord has his word and he has a plan to save, and he has saved. And I guess if there's one thing that, if, if I were to leave you as, as your pastor, that I would hope you would always remember, and I often pray this way with people on the phone or when I go visit them, is, Lord, you've already done the hardest thing for us is you gave Jesus for us. I don't under, you don't, we don't understand everything else going on right now, but we know you've already done the hardest thing for us. So how can we not trust you now to take care of things right now that we don't understand? That, that's the gospel, folks. That's, that's what I desire. That's what we should desire for one another. That's what God desires for you is that this gospel, this good news would carry us, that, that our inclinations would be to go back, okay, I'm hurting here, I don't understand here, but I'm going back to the cross now. And now, now I'm going to understand a little better. I'm going back to the nature of who God is, and that's going to sustain me. And that's why we need to meet in small groups and come to church on Sundays and teach each other and preach each other and sing to one another this gospel. So, folks, if the church, if Israel is to gather together to worship and sing praises to God, how much more fitting is it for the church to gather together and sing praises to the living God in light of what Christ has done and fulfilled the old covenant, right, and bringing in the new covenant? How much more fitting is it for us to praise the Lord? So think about these things as I close. How fitting is your praise? How fitting is your praise? When we actually come and sing songs, I know I talked about this explicitly last Sunday. How fitting is your praise? Then sings, my soul, how my Savior God to thee, how great thou art. Is that fitting? <laughs> no. Your lips are moving, but your heart's not moved. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. It may not sound good to everybody else, but it sounds good to the Lord, you know. Do our expressions on our faces fit praise to the Lord? And then sing, my soul, my Savior, God, the oh, I'll be glad when we get out of here. That's not fitting. Sometimes it's fitting, folks, to lift our hands in worship service. I know that makes some people nervous, and then some people sit around and think, oh, they're just trying to get attention. I've heard all of it. But the Bible talks about it in the Psalms, lifting holy hands, lifting our hands to the Lord to praise the Lord. You're not commanded to, so that's not you. Don't worry about it, but don't criticize somebody else for it. Sometimes it's fitting to say amen or glory or praise God, you know? And the last question I'd ask you is, what can you do this week to build a robust theology, a healthy theology that will produce a consistent doxology? In other words, all I mean by that is this. What is it that you can start doing so that you can praise God at all times because your understanding of who God is is what it should be, and it's growing. Well, I think less worldly feasting 
And more word feasting is probably the answer. Being more in the word and less in the world. And how we spend time in it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for your word and thank you for who you are and how you've revealed yourself to us. You're this great God. God, our prayer is that as a church family, we would, we would know you and, and know what you've done and increasingly so that we might glorify you and praise you at all times as your people. And in doing so, it might be witnessed by those that don't know you and we might have opportunity to declare to them the hope that we have within us, that we could be missional in our overflow of praise to you at all times. Lord, work that way within us. And we pray for unbelievers amongst us to repent and trust in the Lord Jesus. And we ask this for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We're going to stand right now, and there's two songs that we're going to sing. We chose to sing these at the end rather than the beginning because it seemed fitting to praise the Lord this way. So let's stand and sing right now. And if you'd like to come during this time and pray about anything at all, you come as we sing these two songs together. Good morning. Uh, Been a great day so far. The uh, deacons are... Glad to be here today to help with the ordination of Ryan. The background and overview. Deacon Search Committee looks for married men to meet the qualifications of a deacon as set forth in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13, which states, Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given too much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let those also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, must be faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Jesus Christ. Uh, over a period of time of, of several months, in much prayer, the Deacon uh, Candidate uh, Committee interviewed uh, some men who met the qualifications as stated in um, 1 Timothy. Not all those people felt that they were qualified or that they were being called to serve as deacons. At least not this time. Some indicated that maybe sometime in the future as they grow in their faith. Uh, after Ryan and his wife uh, were approached and after time of discernment and prayer that they had, the uh, search committee uh, interviewed Ryan and reported that he was uh, met the qualifications. Part of the interview process includes uh, finding out more about the background of the candidate uh, from their, their uh, religious standpoint, their uh, understanding of the church doctrine, and also the word, uh, and also then how they apply that in their daily lives. So at that point, then the committee uh, felt the deacon uh, that uh, Ryan had met those qualifications, reported back to the full deacon body, and the committee at that point uh, recommended, along with the deacons, that Ryan enter into a period of time uh, which we call a deacon in training. At that point, he was assigned a deacon who helped mentor him. The other deacons uh, helped mentor him through the process, which was well over six months, giving him time to reflect, and his time to his wife to reflect on it, 
and the deacons to further evaluate him and pray about it. After that time period, uh, the deacon body recommended that uh, Ryan go ahead and be nominated as a deacon. The uh, church as a full body at the business meeting uh, followed that recommendation and voted to uh, approve Ryan uh, to be ordained as a deacon. And at this time, we wish our brother and his wife well, and we'll go ahead and proceed with the ordination service. Just briefly, uh, as I was spending time with our family last night getting ready for worship today, I, I told the kids that today we'd be ordaining Ryan and as a deacon, so I explained to them a little bit from First Timothy and that Eric just read and, and what a deacon was. And so uh, is to be reminded, uh, a, a deacon's to be a, a servant, to serve the church, and we're all to serve the church. We know that, right? And I'm so thankful for how uh, you all serve the church so well. And... Uh, but formally, our deacons are chosen to, to serve the church in a formal capacity. The way our, our deacons serve is we have a deacon family ministry. And if you become a member of our church, that you're assigned to one of our deacons. You have a deacon assigned to you. And if, and if you don't know who your deacon is, then, then uh, it may be because we've switched some of our families around and some of that's been confused, or maybe we failed to be in contact with you. And if you don't know who your deacon is, be sure and ask our chairman of deacons or myself, and we'll, we'll make sure you find out who that is. But, but uh, shortly soon, Ryan will be assigned a, a list of families, and some of those uh, families, new families that come in, I imagine, will be assigned to him as well. And, and our deacons are here to serve you. Um, if you have uh, uh, things going on in your life, uh, financial need and, or sickness and things like that, then we try to contact our deacons when we find out and let them know better. They contact uh, me and let me know, and we stay informed and pray together and t- make some visits and things like that. And, and our deacons are here for that and meet together and talk about things in the church and how we can uh, better serve the church. And so I'm thankful for these brothers and, and uh, how they serve the Lord, the Lord so well. So right now what we're going to ask the, the deacons to do is, uh, is to come and one at a time. And Eric, uh, we'll, we'll start with you, if you don't mind, uh, down on this end. And, and uh, our deacons are going to come one at a time, and they're just going to pray for Ryan. As, so if, let, let's pray along with them as they come and, and pray, for, pray for Ryan. And you all just come one at a time as you see this one finished. Present something. <laughs> I don't know what you're going to say or whatever. Go ahead. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. All right. Praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, it's been a good day in the house of the Lord, and I hope that you are hungry, and I uh, hope that you're ready to eat, because we have a plenty of food in the back, more than, probably way more than enough, I imagine. So uh, we're going to be dismissed. I'm going to dismiss this in prayer, and I'm going to bless the food now. And so uh, John, Donnie's about to jump out in the road in the row. Uh, I know we're running a little later in the service this morning. So uh, parents, be sure and thank our nursery workers this morning for how they serve, and we should do that anyway, right? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this, uh, this morning, Lord. We thank you for your goodness to us, and uh, thank you, Lord, for, for uh, just Ryan and Lauren and what they mean to our church family, and thank you for our deacon body, and we pray that you continue to strengthen us in unity and, and deepen us in our understanding of the gospel and, and who you are and what you've done. Lord, bless the food that you've prepared and provided for us this morning, Lord, and we ask uh, you bless our time of fellowship together, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed. What is the gospel? It all begins with God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
God created the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve, to rule over the garden. God told them they could eat from any tree that they wanted to in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything was perfect in the garden. They had a perfect relationship with the land, a perfect relationship with each other, a perfect relationship with God until they chose to rebel against God and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it brought about separation between them and God. Man has always tried to bridge the separation on his own terms and in his own strength. Whether it's building a ladder of morality and trying to be good enough for God, or even in the Old Testament example, when men built a tower into the heavens trying to reach God on their own. A more contemporary example comes from 1961, when the Russians were first successful in sending a man into outer space. Upon returning, the Russian cosmonaut remarked, We have been to space, and we didn't find God or heaven there. A popular professor and author, C.S. Lewis, responded to the Russian cosmonaut. He said that looking for God in outer space is kind of like Hamlet, one of the characters in Shakespeare's plays, looking for Shakespeare in the attic of his home. Lewis said that for Hamlet to have a relationship with Shakespeare, Shakespeare would literally have to write himself into the story. That is the gospel. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Almost 2,000 years ago, the Bible says that Jesus, in fulfillment to Old Testament prophecies, was born of a virgin. Even as a child, he lived a perfect life. At the age of 30, he began his public ministry. He attracted followers. For three years, he taught, he healed, and he made bold claims, such as saying that he alone was the only way to God. The religious and political leaders did not like these teachings. They invoked a riot against Jesus. They brought about false accusations leading to a trial and to a sentencing of death by public crucifixion. The Bible says that while Jesus hung on the cross, that God placed all of the sin of all of mankind on Jesus. Jesus hung on the cross as our substitute. God made him him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. They took Jesus down from the cross and they put him in a tomb. They rolled a large stone at the entrance of the tomb so no one could get in or out. There were Roman soldiers who were posted on guard to keep people from coming to take Jesus's body. But on the third day, according to scripture, he rose again. After being seen by many eyewitnesses and giving instruction to his followers, he ascended back into the heaven, where he now sits at the right hand of God and serves as our advocate before the Father. So what does this have to do with you? The Bible says that we have all sinned and that we all fall short of God's standard of holiness. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no way to get rid of the burden of sin on our own. God calls all men everywhere to believe in Christ, repent of sins, and trust Christ to live a new life. As we look back and believe in what God has done through the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection, as we repent and turn from our sins, as we trust Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we have peace with God and the forgiveness of sins. So let's review. It all begins with God. Because of our sin, we are separated from God. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Jesus died in our place for our sins and rose again on the third day. As we believe in Christ, repent from our sins, and trust Jesus for new life, we have peace with God and forgiveness of sins. That is the gospel.